Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. We're recording this podcast during the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. Today, I have two guests, Marie Baldessari and Randy Wax. We're going to be focusing in on their experience being part of the disaster team that went to Haiti about a year ago now to help with the disaster related to the earthquake at that time. Dr. Wax is Medical Director of Critical Care and Resuscitation at Lake Ridge Health Corporation in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, and he's an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's also the former chair of the H1N1 Task Force for the Society of Critical Care Medicine and is currently chair of the FDM Committee. Dr. Baldessari is an associate professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. She uh, also is currently a member of the Board of Regents of the American College of Critical Care Medicine and the immediate past chair of FCCS. Thank you both very much for taking time out of your schedules to be here today. That's great to be here. Great to be here. Um, As we were discussing before, I thought it would be great uh, for the listeners to hear a little bit about how you went from hearing about this horrible disaster to becoming involved, and, and the more details, the better. Um, so maybe I'll start talking about sort of how we, we got involved. You know, when the, um, the word first came out about the, um, the earthquake in Haiti and the, the devastation, I think anybody who's interested in um, helping out in a disaster was listening and trying to think to themselves, how can we participate? How can we help in a meaningful way? And, you know, the challenge, I think, with critical care in a disaster situation is that um, it's, you need some infrastructure, I think, to help you. You can't just walk in with a stethoscope and you can help stabilize people, but you need something. You need to work in some kind of support structure to make things happen. So as an individual, it becomes difficult to sort of parachute in and help. In fact, in many cases, when people parachute into a disaster situation without support, they actually become more of a hindrance than a help. So, you know, from the society's perspective, uh, I think um, over the first few days, everyone was patiently waiting to figure out what's the best way to help. And it actually happened during Congress, right? That's right. Absolutely. That's right. In fact, um, that year I actually gave the lecture on natural disasters, including earthquakes, um, at the Fundamental Disaster Management course. And it was kind of ironic that, uh, you know, days after doing that, suddenly we're facing one of the largest natural disasters uh, in history. So it's interesting as well, I, I think it speaks uh, a lot to the, the quality of the, the members in our society that um, it came from an individual member uh, who was actually in the Dominican Republic on the border of Haiti, Dr. Alejandro Baez. He was instrumental in finding a way for the society to participate uh, in a helpful way with, uh, with the aftermath of this disaster. Um, so what were some of the first steps that happened? Sure. So uh, an, email went, uh, an email came to the society from uh, Dr. Baez explaining that you know, he um, runs one of the large critical care units um, in the Dominican Republic and uh, has had a strong interest in disaster management and um, felt that the society could play a very important role in uh, helping with the uh, Haiti disaster. 
and he had uh, requested uh, potential help in terms of uh, understanding uh, if there were ways with all the uh, education programs that the society has that we could train people and augment their critical care resources in the Dominican Republic. And it, and it was interesting that the call actually came from, not from Haiti itself, but from the Dominican Republic. Uh, at the time, things were so disrupted in Haiti that um, people were trying to look at just basic needs for survival, you know, water, food, all the basic public health measures. Those were much more important, I think, in the initial stages in critical care, and search and rescue to be able to get people out of the rubble. But in order to augment uh, the capacity for dealing with critically ill patients, you needed to start someplace where there was some infrastructure, but they needed to augment that. And the Dominican Republic was a place that even at the best of times, I mean, they have fantastic resources. They have amazing physicians and nurses and uh, other staff, but um, they, they're operating on the brink um, in dealing with their own population. So they had the expertise, but they needed some help to figure out how to, to augment that to help look after uh, patients from the, from the Haiti disaster. So, so, so then the, the SCCM team itself started to be assembled. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So we, um, I got the call from um, the society's leadership and uh, was asked to uh, make some recommendations to put together a team of people who could um, go and um, start an initial assessment, figure out how can we actually help as a society. And I think um, being able to offer help in, a, in an intelligent and meaningful way, that was a very important first step, rather than just sending out a blanket message to everybody in the society saying, everybody pack your bags and go, that actually would have been a bad thing to do. So I think it was, it was very wise to um, take the first few days to help figure out what people on the ground really needed. And so we were able to assemble a fantastic team. Uh, we had um, Dr. Baldessari, who was, uh, has fantastic expertise uh, as a previous chair of FCCS um, and has been very active in the education front. Um, we had um, Dr. M.J. Reed, who's a uh, surgeon. We had um, uh, Dana Brainer, who was a former chair of the FDM course and a, a pediatric intensivist. Um, and uh, we had uh, support staff from the society coming with us as well. Uh, and uh, I actually brought uh, somebody from uh, our provincial disaster team in Ontario, Dr. Swadsky, who's the uh, director of our EMAT team, to come and look to see if there were other resources we could actually bring in, not just from the society, but from other governments uh, to help liaise to bring in some help. And then um, either of you, um, the part that is, is fascinating and, and I don't understand is how did it go then to we're going to either be affiliated or, or how big the team would be and where to go? Like, was it a particular hospital? And then how do you decide how much equipment that you actually need to bring with you? Well, I think it was, it, it was an interesting um, proposal that Dr. Baez uh, gave to us. He actually wanted our team to go down and basically do a needs assessment. That is to look at the critical care beds available in the DR, the Dominican, as well as Haiti, and to come up with ideas on how to decompress the beds in the Dominican Republic. There are 70 ICU beds for a population of perhaps 8 million, 9 million. Um, and that's for the DR patients. These beds were totally filled to capacity with Haitian patients. And most of these patients were unable and certainly did not want to go back to Haiti. So what was happening? So you got patients, so there's a, there's a superimposed social I issue that they're there and there's no, and they don't even want, there's no back to go to? There's or? no yeah. place to go back home. Well, one, one of the, the lessons that I think Dr. Baez taught me when I went 
um, was this whole concept of disaster diplomacy. And you have to understand, you're, you're, there's an island, it's one island, but you have two countries. You have Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And to be honest, you know, the relationship between the countries hasn't always been the best. And um, being able to navigate um, across a border to be able to help is a real challenge. And, um, you know, in any kind of disaster situation, people um, don't care about political borders. That's not important. They just want to live and they want to get access to medical services. They want to get access to food and water. And so um, even though you've got two separate countries, one country hit badly with the disaster, one not, um, the fact is is that people crossed the border and they, they, they needed help. Um, and so the challenge as well, I think, uh, for, for Dr. Baez is to, it was to really help bridge that gap between the two countries. And that's where I think um, um, having a team come from SCCM helped because it was, it was, an, it was an international group. Right, right, it had right. expertise in critical care. And so um, sometimes you need a, a kind of neutral third party to come in to help um, confirm what um, people on the ground know. Uh, but you just need to say it and, and help overcome those barriers. And your, um, your team was about, it sounds like maybe seven or eight people, something right. around that. And did you all meet at a certain part in the United States and then fly down, or did you all meet down there? No, we, we all met in the Dominican Republic. So the society did a fantastic job coordinating the logistics at the last minute to uh, wow. get us all from uh, across, uh, across the U.S. and me from Canada and, and Dr. Swadsky uh, coming down to meet in the Dominican Republic. And I can tell you, we, uh, I think I probably had about four hours on the ground before we were on a car and headed towards the Haitian border. And uh, it was a uh, definite uh, whirlwind in terms of uh, trying to get everything together, um, you know, uh, getting your colleagues at home to uh, cover for you. Uh, so I was going to ask about away. that. I, I, maybe yeah. it sounds like a trivial question, but, but having a job that would say, uh, was there a plan for something like a two-week stay initially, or how, how was that decided? I don't think we had ever decided beforehand how long we would be. I think a, a few of the members knew that they could not be there for very long. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Brainer went down, and I think his mom got sick the day after he arrived, so he knew he had to go back immediately. And I think Randy knew that he could stay for a week a or week. so. Yeah. I had cleared my calendar so that I knew I could stay up to three weeks if wow. necessary. Um, but we were, we're, I think we did it on the fly. We went down, and we wanted to see what the situation was, and we would stay for as long as necessary. And how long after the initial event were you there? It sounds like it was a, a few days. or was well, I was there, I think, a week, and yeah. you were there for... But how long after? How long the, after the initial event? I'm sorry, when, oh. like after the earthquake, at what was, how many days after it initially happened were you down there? It's maybe six days, yeah. something okay. like that. Yeah. Within a week. Yeah. And so the, the idea, and I, I think this is another point that, you've both taught me through FDM is, is that, um, and there were articles in the New England Journal of Medicine about this, is that the, I guess there was the Israeli group that was there yeah. within, within hours or whatever. And these, there's, there's sort of different roles for at the different stages of these kinds of disasters, right? Do you want to talk about that, I guess, for a little bit? You know, it's, it's interesting. And I think this is something that we deal with in critical care all the time. Um, there's, we all, I think most of us love patient care. And we care about the individual patient, and we care about the individual families, and you know, it, and that's where our, our hearts are. But at the same time, in a disaster situation, you need some people looking after the patients, and you also need another layer that's going to help look at um, some of the bigger issues: the political infrastructure, the educational needs, the whole needs assessment piece. And you know, I, I know we all came with stuff in our backpacks, ready to go and help the individual patients, and. Um, it was a real struggle for me. I know as we were going through the hospitals and 
um, when we were out at the border, uh, the Haitian border, uh, at the makeshift the hospital that we put together in Himini, and seeing these patients that needed help, and we wanted to get our hands dirty. And it was, um, it was very difficult to stop because we knew that there were fantastic people there who were able to look after that. And at a, in, in, in parallel to all of that, somebody needed to stand back and help establish the infrastructure. And so, um, you know, sometimes in, in disasters, it may not be as sexy to look after the logistical issues or the education issues sometimes, but um, to get beyond that first week of response. No, and it, it's crucial. And these are points that you bring up in the FDM course, that mm -hmm. to, to separate out, have somebody up here looking down to sort of say, you know, where are the needs most in different parts of the disaster situation? Yeah. It's, it's absolutely critical that you separate out those two groups, the clinicians and those who are doing the needs assessment. I mean, that is basically what we did when we first went down there. We met with public health officials, officials of the Pan American Health Organization that Dr. Baez was associated with. Uh, we met with some government officials, with the, the disaster command center that they had set up in the DR. Um, and these steps were all necessary for us to do our job. Our job was not to go down there and to manage these patients clinically. Our job was to help them organize and reorganize their system of triage between Haiti and the Dominican Republic to build up their medical infrastructure. So can, can I think that's a wonderful next uh, talking point. So t how, how did that go in terms of your needs assessment? What was that like? I think it went well. Um, it, you know, we, uh, it, it certainly was done on a, on a small level, um, but perhaps not so small. I guess it depends on your perspective. Uh, we met with these officials. We were able to give advice as to when patients should be triaged out of the acute care hospitals back to Haiti. We looked at establishing intermediate care units, which would decompress the intensive care units. We looked at the public hospitals and the private hospitals. Mm. They have several private hospitals in the Dominican Republic which weren't actively involved in the care of patients. Mm. So by them opening up their doors to some of the public paying patients, it allowed an increase in the number of acute care beds. So you'd work with the, with, the, with, the, uh, with the government, or, or you, would, you would be there and say, why aren't patients coming here or something like we that? We worked through Dr. Baez, and Dr. Baez is an amazing individual because his contacts with the DR government, he's a well-trained individual, has been Harvard-trained, Mayo-trained, but decided to go back to the Dominican Republic. Um, so he has tremendous resources. He's, you know, works for the Pan American Health Organization. He's involved directly with the medical uh, arm of the Dominican Republic government. So we had access to areas that if we had gone alone as a group, we would never have been able to meet these public health officials. Well, and it's, and it's something, I'm sorry, it's something that you've emphasized to me multiple times is going in with a plan, going in with a structure, just running in to be helpful. You can often get yourself into a lot of trouble, right, and not actually do that much good. And, and that's, I think, it emphasizes the importance um, of looking at um, SCCM, for example, as an international organization. Because really, in order to be able to help in the world when disaster strikes or other problems as well, um, whether it's educational issues or scientific issues, um, you know, it's a global community. And so um, you can't just plop into some place without knowing the local culture, the local politics, the economics. Um, otherwise, you're going to be useless and you're going to get in the way. So I, I think, you know, we were very fortunate that... Um, we had a uh, fantastic contact there. And I think the, the way this flowed 
coming from the Dominican Republic as opposed to SEC oh, being trying to it. impose on that that was absolutely key to our, our success. So it was a much more organic uh, the way it came about and that allowed it to be empowered. Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying? The, the, I believe absolutely. so. Yeah. And um, you were mentioning to me before that then you then stayed on to help do some of the FCCS courts teaching down there. I'd love to hear about it. We, we certainly believe that the FCCS and FDM courses are the types of courses that you need to respond to any type of disaster. FCCS teaches you those concepts of how to manage acutely ill and chronically ill patients within the first 24 hours, but certainly could be extrapolated. Clearly, the con- some of the concepts of FDM, although uh, the disaster had already happened, some of the concepts taught in the FDM course can also be taught after a disaster, uh, in response to a disaster. So it was important to us to do the first part of our job, which was to help strengthen that medical infrastructure to reorganize the ICU acute care beds. But the second part of our mission, and that wasn't really delineated at first. I think we sort of came up with this idea because it just seemed such a natural extension of what we were wanted to do, was education of the in-country providers. We recognized that what we did had limited value, may have had some great value, but it had limited value. And it, when you talk about sustainability in an area like this that's been devastated, you have to talk about education. You have to talk about education of the in-country providers to continue this level of medical support. Because at some point, it's going to be much less sexy. People are going to be leaving Haiti. They're going to be leaving the DR. When all the hubbub is over, the clinicians who flooded down to Haiti and the DR are going to go away but the patients are going to stay, and they're moving into the subacute phase, the chronic phase, the rehabilitative phase, and Haiti is simply not prepared to handle that. And I think they would be the first to admit that their physicians and nurses, this has not been part of their training. Um, so we felt that teaching FCCS was an important contributor to education, so we gave two FCCS courses while we were there. The very first one was in Santo Domingo, uh, the main city. Uh, We came back actually three weeks later, myself and Dr. Reed, and taught in another hospital which was not on the border. Specifically, we didn't choose a border hospital. We chose one that was rather in the middle of the country so that these physicians and nurses could actually go out to different areas and try and decompress some of the border hospital acuity, but also to teach others. And was the the focus, I apologize, was the focus uh, to get some key clinical leadership in each of these hospitals so that they could then teach the FCCS more? The concept is to teach the teachers, to train the trainers. We know that we are not capable of training such a large group, but they are and it's their responsibility, and they take this responsibility very seriously. They've continued to have FCCS, many FCCS courses since we've left the country, and at some point, this will also start in Haiti. In fact, myself and Dr. Reed and maybe Dr. Wax as well may be going back to Haiti in February to teach an FCCS course in Haiti and not the Dominican Republic. So this would be the first course there. And just to add to that, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, the role of, of course, like FDM, and, and I think you know, when a country gets devastated with one disaster, it's just like a very sick patient who's sick and then gets a secondary infection. When you've had your first disaster, you're that much more 
predisposed to getting the next problem. And it was a perfect example of that with you, you get a horrible cholera. earthquake and now you have a huge cholera outbreak that they've had to deal with. And even if there hadn't been an earthquake, just the cholera problem they'd had put such a stretch on their resources that those kinds of um, both FCCS resuscitation principles and initial care and um, the principles of disaster management would have been very helpful. So a question I wanted to ask you um, is, I did the podcast with you relating to H1N1, and we were talking about your paper um, in terms of triage. And it's sort of my little uh, triage Bible and, and, and at Montefiore, New York, where when the H1N1 was hitting us there, we had that up, and we were talking with all the fellows, and we had all the different triage up. I was wondering, as sort of my mentor in that, what was, what was that like in terms of when you got to Haiti and, and, and some of these triage issues were really there? How did that get implemented? Even if it wasn't you doing it yourself, just sharing with the listeners your thoughts on this. Sure. Well, I mean, there's, there's one important concept, which is, if at all possible, you never want to have to use triage <coughs> right? You want to try to increase your infrastructure as much as possible. You want to prevent critical illness as much as possible so that you don't get to the point where you're overwhelming your critical care resources. So I think, um, you know, all the emphasis on public health measures, for example, uh, even despite what ended up happening with the cholera outbreak, I think there would have been many more deaths, illnesses, and burden to the system, and more critically ill patients if there wasn't such emphasis on things like clean drinking water and sanitation and all those other things and basic medical care. So I think that's an important principle. That's the last thing you ever want to get to is triage. So I think the emphasis on those kinds of resources are actually very important. There is no doubt that the critical care resources in Haiti, I mean, the Dominican Republic was stretched. The critical care resources in Haiti were uh, They must have minimal. been overwhelmed within, yeah. within the first... And, and even with the external groups that were coming in, it's really challenging, you know, in a very austere environment to be able to provide the kind of critical care that, you know, you're used to. And, and the reality is there were many patients who um, were, were lucky because with, with early aggressive management, with basics like IV fluids and other things, we're able to save lives that way. Um, the kind of complicated critical care that we do uh, in, in our own countries, um, you know, you're not putting anybody on a high-frequency oscillator and uh, CRRT and all these things. Like it just, it's, you can't do it. So the, the triage, uh, I think it's not only a question of prioritizing which patients are likely to survive and not, but I think that the challenge for people coming into this kind of environment is understanding that the bar changes in terms of where do you say, you know, I can help versus I can't help. And when you've got minimal resources to work with. Uh, it's, uh, it's a whole different way of, of looking at things. I, I, I know Dr. Ian Butler, who was um, an intensivist and eMERGE physician, who was uh, working in the, in the hospital at the, at the border uh, in Himini, um, did a phenomenal job of organizing um, their um, field hospital that had been set up. And I know he came in when things were, were running, but it was fantastic. As an intensivist, he was able to come in, and even though he, I don't think he had even had a defibrillator at that point, maybe one, um, no ventilators, none of the fancy equipment that we're used to using, but the important principles of recognizing who's sick and who isn't, who can you help and who can't you help, and trying to help people early, those things that we do every day as an intensivist, um, that skill set likely saved many, many lives. And I think the whole, you know, um, multi-professional approach that uh, intensivists in general take and the society really encourages was key because he was able to rally people from all sorts of different disciplines to work well together and really got the place organized. So that was a great example of um, triage, but not the kind of triage that we're thinking about in that kind of paper for a pandemic, talking about who's going to get a vent. You can't argue about who's going to get a ventilator if you don't have any vents at all, right? 
So I was going to turn next um, to Dr. Baldessari, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to to tell us a little bit about the story of your Critical Care Disaster Foundation. Uh, I'm going to read in the, the web. It's www.ccdfoundation.org, and I'd love to hear about it. Thank you. Well, you know, I have been involved with education, as, as we all have, for many years, and over the last 10 years or so, have, have really taken an, an interest in disaster education and responsive, response to disaster, disaster preparedness. But to be perfectly frank, I had never actually been in a disaster. So Haiti was my first exposure. And one of the first things that became acutely obvious to me when I was down there, that there were so many well-intentioned people, so many doctors, so many nurses, RTs, etc., and they all came down there to help, but they were all doing clinical work. And what we did from an SCCM perspective gave me a totally different perspective, that there was another part of working disasters, and that was infrastructure building, critical care capacity building, and education. Allowing the clinicians to function, getting Allow- it to the course. point that the clinicians could One even function. One is not right? exclusive of the yeah, other. Yeah, no, They're allowing them to, to, exactly, to work. Exactly, f- facilitating them to work. Um, and I began to formalize this in my own mind and thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to to really formalize this and create my own organization, not having any idea what it meant to create an NGO and not realizing how much money it would take nor the involvement of how many lawyers it takes. But after several months, it it finally came to fruition. Um, It's an organization devoted to exactly what we did in the Dominican and Haiti, to look at infrastructure building, to propagate education as a means of sustainability. Um, and so, uh, w- w- just to for the listeners, so so a foundation then would be an organization that would fund other projects for this kind of thing, or can you talk a little bit the, more details? The, the way it, since all of my funds are basically from my fundraising, it's important that I align myself with a bigger group because obviously no one knows about this. Very few people know about this as of now. You know, few people have gone to the website, but it's hard to get the word out. So what I've done is align myself with the Society of Critical Care Medicine as well as the World Federation because if there's a disaster, these are the groups that are going to get the calls from the governments and the public health officials saying, can you help us? And having my foundation as a potential resource is a way for me to get more publicity and a way for me to quickly respond. And then something else you mentioned that I, that I also thought was fascinating was that um, you had some ideas about uh, disaster education at the critical care level. Well, as I've become more and more involved with disaster medicine, and Randy can certainly substantiate this as well, we recognize that education of intensivists in disaster medicine is very important, and Haiti certainly underscored this point tremendously. Uh, Disaster medicine has always been in the purview of emergency room physicians and trauma surgeons and orthopedics, but as I said, we recognize that there is a tremendous role for intensivists. Uh, in this kind of disaster situation. So at the University of Pittsburgh, I've introduced a dura- uh, disaster curriculum into, their, into the fellowship uh, curriculum, and hopefully within a year or two, once we get funding, we will be able to start a disaster fellowship as well. So in addition to their one or two years of critical care fellowship, if they are interested, they would do a year of both didactic and clinical disaster medicine. 
And I thought I'd uh, conclude the podcast by giving you each an opportunity to share some of your sort of personal thoughts on on how it changed you being part of an event like this. Well, um, you know, there's a moment that will always stick in my mind. Um, uh, when after, it was shortly after we landed, I was a bit sleep deprived because uh, I think my flight left uh, about 11 at night. It was basically all overnight and I had about two hours of sleep in the hotel room before we got in the car to head to the border. And I remember um, the radio was on in the car and uh, it was um, sort of Spanish and you know, relatively happy routine music from the Dominican Republic. And as we were getting closer and closer to the border, I remember we started to pick up the radio stations uh, in French and you know, from Canada. And my, my French isn't perfect, but certainly I can understand a lot what, what was being said. And I remember it just how amazing it was that you go from a city where things were functioning reasonably normally on the surface, like in Santo Domingo, to not being not that far away. And suddenly, you know, I'm hearing on the radio and just people in tears and talking about what a devastating event this has been and realizing that, you know, it's um, as much as you can see things on television and as much as you can read about it or, or do research studies, at the end of the day, um, when you get involved in a situation like this, that's just so overwhelmingly devastating and sad to know that there's an opportunity to go in and make a difference. Even if it's not the kind of difference you thought you were going to make, it's completely life-changing. And I can tell you that um, you know when I started getting involved in disaster medicine, uh, it was uh, more by force than by choice because I was involved in the SARS outbreak in, in Canada, and I was in the middle of it and started getting involved with it. And then I realized that you know there's there's definitely something that I hadn't really been trained to do, but uh, something I could help with. And um, but nothing, I think, touched me as much as uh, that moment when I realized we were actually getting close and starting to know that, you know, in the next half an hour, 45 minutes, we were really going to see what was going on. And uh, when we got out of the car and saw what was happening, uh, there are things there that I'm, I'm never going to forget seeing and, and changed me. The other thing that uh, I remember seeing when we got up to the hospital in Himini, there was um, a, a little um, sign taped by the um, pharmacy that was there. And um, uh, it said, check your egos at the door. This is the real world. And I've never forgotten that quote uh, because uh, that uh, really made you understand that you, know, you need to appreciate your routine everyday life and uh, your families and your job because people there were going through something that uh, most people couldn't possibly imagine. So that, that was, it was really touched me. Dr. Beltzer? And I think as uh, Randy's comments are a segue to what I've uh, reiterated throughout this podcast is that intensivists can become involved. And what we need to do as a society is to formalize this process. We need to be dedicated. We need to set up a register of physicians, nurses, RTs who are available and ready to go so that in the future, we can go at a moment's notice and help because the role of the intensivist in disaster medicine is there, it's viable, and it's the future. And, and uh, I just wanted to thank you both and, and say to the listeners that the society, for me personally, uh, when we went through getting ready when H1N1 was coming through, there are key leaders in SCCM like the both of you and these important courses like FCCS and FDM that really can put structure on what otherwise can be just horrifically chaotic, difficult situations. We've been speaking today with Dr. Marie Baldessari and Dr. Randy Wax. We've been talking about disaster management for critically ill patients. We're focusing in on the Haiti disaster and the setting of their earthquake one year later. Thank you both so very, very much for being here today. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Ensure that every member of your staff who comes in contact with critically ill patients has the confidence and skills to treat those patients effectively. Bring SCCM's staff training courses on initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak to the SCCM Hospital Relations Manager for details about the fundamental critical care support, pediatric fundamental critical care support, or fundamental disaster management courses. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.